welcome to the latest episode of the Pixel Drone Show, our weekly podcast where we talk to people who do groundbreaking breaking work with drones. Uh, as always, my co-hosts are Kara Murphy and Greg Reverdio, and today we have Bill Wimberly, the head of business development at Wingcopter, as our guest. Wingcopter is a German developer and drone manufacturer uh, that use their drones for both commercial and humanitarian applications. And you will probably have heard about their drones. Uh, the Wingcopter 198 uh, is a fixed-wing drone that was used with uh, UPS in the IPP program. And we'll be sure to talk more about that later on in the show as well. Uh, Bill, welcome to the show and thank you so much for making yourself available today. Yeah, thanks for asking me. Sure. Awesome. Well, can we can we perhaps start with a little introduction about uh, your history with drones and your position within Wingcopter, so that we we know that for the audience. Sure. So I got interested in uh, drones when I spent a year and a half in Afghanistan, uh, back about five and a half years ago, and uh, I won't tell I won't dive into that too far, but uh, uh, really fell in love with that whole idea, that whole uh, concept of drones and. Uh, Obviously, not for necessarily military purposes, but but for doing good. Uh, also, I'm a, an aviator back since I was 16 years old. So I learned to fly an airplane before I could fly a car or drive a car. So, uh, but yeah, that was really the introduction. And uh, I found Wingcopter about three years ago. Uh, I was actually looking for the best drone company that I, I could find in the world because I really wanted uh, my career to go in that direction. I wanted to stay in that particular uh, focus. And and I did a lot of research. I found those guys, reached out to the CEO, which in, at that time and, and even now is Tom Plumer. And I said, hey, Tom, I'm very interested in what you're doing. I've got a lot of startup software development and hardware development experience. So I think I can help you. And so we started a discussion and I joined them full time about two and a half years ago in Germany. Ah, so you moved actually from the U.S. to Germany and spent time living abroad, or? I did. And uh, I, I started when they were in an incubator uh, in Darmstadt. Uh, they were in the Merck uh, incubator, very small company. I think they were like maybe 22, 23 people with the company. Now uh, the company is about 130. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I was one of the sort of the really early guys uh, working with uh, the founders. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how Wingcopter got started? Yeah, it's really a fascinating story. There's a great YouTube video about their starting, starting but uh, uh, there's a guy named John L. Hesselberth, Barth, and he is uh, uh, an aviation uh, entrepreneur and an inventor. And he actually invented the original design of the Wingcopter. Uh, and then he met Tom uh, Plumer, who... Uh, uh, was a, a marketing guy, uh, an aviation guy, and, uh, and and had a lot of experience with drones in, at that time period. And and they got together and decided, hey, we, we think we could have something here. Uh, let's work together. And then they brought on a third team member, uh, uh, Ansgar Kadura, and uh, they were the original founders of the company. Uh, quite frankly, the company was had revenue before they were even a company. Uh, the design of the Wingcopter was so captivating uh, that when they showed it to people, uh, they really were interested in buying it. They wanted uh, wanted this aircraft. So uh, they said, well, I guess that's sort of the impetus for us to form a company. Uh, and this was about five years ago when, when all that took place. So uh, fascinating beginnings uh, of the company. So, I mean, you don't hear that too often, right? That the company already is making revenue before they, they officially get started. Like, what, what was the appeal? Like, what made that drone so special that it got so much interest so early on? So, the idea, I think they were one of the first ones in the entire industry to design a, a vertical takeoff, uh, but fixed-wing forward-flying aircraft. Uh, now, obviously, there are things in the military like the Osprey and, and other such aircraft that, that preceded this, but but taking this and miniaturizing it into a drone footprint. Uh, uh, Jonathan, as, as the inventor, was one of the first guys to do that. And it was just captivating, the idea that you can take off and land in a very small spot and, and then fly uh, horizontally at very high speeds and travel very long distances uh, was captivating to people. Uh, and it opened up a bunch of different possibilities that that just didn't exist with a multi-copter at that time. So uh, 
you know, it just it just opened up a market that just wasn't there. So if we fast forward, you know, you're talking about how the company was different back then. What do you think makes the company different today now that uh, there there's competition and other companies that are designing this similar type of, uh, of aircraft? That's a great question. And, and the thing is, in order to be successful in the small UAS industry, you have to have a focus on safety, durability, and reliability. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how far your aircraft can fly, how fast it can fly, how high it can fly, how much payload it can carry. If you can't meet the regulatory requirements to put your aircraft in the airspace, whatever country you're talking about, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, so from the very, very beginning, going back two and a half years ago, when when this current model of the aircraft, uh, the Wing Copter 198, was conceived, it was conceived to be a type certified aircraft. It was designed specifically to, to operate in regulatory airspace. Uh, most aircraft are designed, most of the, uh, I'm sorry, not necessarily aircraft, but most of the uh, drones in the commercial space are ver a visual line of sight drones. Mm -hmm. So you see people doing inspection, you see them seeing, uh, doing real estate photography, you're seeing all kinds of different things. All of those aircraft are flying in the visual line of sight under a Part 107 license, which is very easy to get, low barrier of entry, and that's a very um, simple uh, segment of the drone industry to participate in. Wingcopter is a BV loss beyond visual line of sight only aircraft. It is designed specifically, uh, again, to fly in regulatory airspace. That is, if that's probably one of the biggest differentiators, other than the, again, the EV tall fixed wing configuration uh, that provides a lot of flexibility. Yep. I think we'll uh, we'll definitely come back to this uh, topic. But before we go there, I wanted to ask you, are there any benefits uh, for Wingcopter to be a German company and based in Germany? Uh, actually, there are. Uh, from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. is very interested in bringing uh, uh, companies like Wingcopter into the U.S. market. Uh, so uh, we have been courted uh, quite nicely by the German Accelerator Program and the Select USA program uh, with U.S. Department of Commerce. Uh, I think Germans are known for quality and, and design, uh, so especially in aviation. So uh, it has been an asset, not a liability for sure to, to be a German company. Yeah. So where are things now with Wingcopter? So Wingcopter is, is currently in the type certification process with the Federal Aviation Regulation uh, Agency. And uh, we are working very closely and very diligently in that process. It's a very long, very complex, very costly process uh, to get that regulatory approval. Uh, but, but that's really where we're focused heavily. Uh, and also innovative, uh, being innovative in other areas like uh, uh, our ability to carry multiple packages, our ability to uh, to uh, have one-to-many pilot commanding of the aircraft. Uh, we're constantly innovating ways for our aircraft to be better and better. Uh, we're pursuing right now a, a, a very, very high accuracy uh, uh, landing system that will allow us to pinpoint landings, uh, even on moving objects. Uh, we're working on uh, even more sophisticated telecommunications uh, connections and things uh, with partner vendors. So uh, Wingcopter is advancing in all areas of, of UAS operations, including our, our recent partnership with a, a company uh, called Sprite, which is a division of Air Methods, which brings to us a, a very unique ability to be in the medical industry. And uh, ultimately, when, when we're approved with the Department of Transportation, and the FAA uh, doing medical delivery of hazardous materials across the United States. You actually jumped right into my next question. I was going to talk about the other partnership that you have on your website, which is with LATAM in, uh, in Peru. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what you're doing there? So we, we've uh, pursued partnerships all around the world. Uh, we, are, we figured out very quickly that Wing Copter can't be everything to everybody. 
Uh, we certainly can't, uh, uh, you know, do everything in, in the UAS aviation space. So we have, uh, in particular, myself and one other person have worked very hard on setting up these partnerships. So that's one in Peru. Uh, yeah, they're a, a, an operating company that will fly our aircraft and will uh, be, uh, you know, providing services to, to countries in their jurisdiction, I guess you would call it. Uh, we're also working with uh, companies in Chile and Brazil and Japan and, uh, and Europe and, and the United Arab Emirates. So it's part of our strategy to partner with those kinds of companies. And we're excited about the latest one being that company, the company in Peru. Awesome. So, and then the other uh, partnership that was recently announced is with Sprite for, for medical deliveries right here in the United States. Can you tell us about uh, that partnership as well? Yeah, we're, we're very proud of that partnership. So I don't know if your listeners know who this is, but uh, Sprite is a division of Air Methods. Uh, Air Methods is the largest um, air medical uh, hospital, I'm sorry, air medical uh, helicopter company in the United States. So most people don't know that a large percentage of the hospitals in the U.S. outsource their, uh, their emergency services in that respect. And uh, these guys are, are the premier company in that space. And their CEO had the vision, along with the founder of Sprite, to, uh, to have a UAS division here several months ago. And we teamed up with them, and now we are strategic partners in the U.S. They bring to our, our capabilities a knowledge of, of the medical industry and connections and relationships in the medical industry that we, we wouldn't otherwise have. Mm -hmm. And we bring to them the ability uh, with a uniquely designed aircraft to do medical delivery. So it's, it's, it's almost like the perfect partnership in, in this particular space. Yeah. Now you mentioned earlier that, uh, the wingcopter drone is really a, a beyond visual line of sight drone. Like what kind of criteria, uh, are you looking to meet when you look for, for partnerships? I mean, I, I can imagine that you have certain applications for your drone in mind when you look for partnerships. So right now we're focused, like I said, heavily on the type certification process in the U.S. Uh, that opens the doors to a lot of other countries because there are reciprocal relationships with regulators in like Latin America, mm -hmm. Japan, Australia, other places. Uh, so, so that's a real high priority. But, uh, but the other one is, is that particular capability just opens so many, many doors for us. So I don't know if I answered your question. Um, well, yeah, um, maybe. yeah, I mean, yes and no, I guess. I mean, um, what I was also looking for is that you see drones being used in, in many different ways. And for instance, uh, earlier in the week, there was, uh, there was a story in the news about uh, two companies in Norway where they're looking to use drones to deliver milk. And in my mind, when you use drones for, for delivery, uh, I think about, okay, so you need something that's of high value, uh, let's say relative small size, uh, not a lot of weight, uh, where there's a high level of urgency and maybe also combined with uh, remote terrain or rural areas where the benefit of delivering something with a drone is, is much greater than if you were to take a, a truck. I was thinking about those right. kind of criteria, if that's stuff that you guys uh, keep in mind when you look for new partnerships. Yeah, then that's, um, yeah, sorry, I didn't answer that as directly as I should have. The, the answer is, yeah, delivery is really where we're focused right now. Yeah. And the reason for that is uh, delivery plays into the strengths of the aircraft. The aircraft is ver vertical takeoff and landing. So the landing site and the, the receiving site, uh, or the launching site, do not have to be very large. That's important. Uh, the other thing is uh, the aircraft is designed to fly a long distance uh, at high speeds, and carry pretty reasonable payload, uh, 13 pounds of payload. So it's a, it's a really good fit for any application where distance, speed, uh, reachability, I would call it, maybe, uh, you know, for example, uh, over a mountain range or, or a long distance to a disconnected community or whatever are important criteria. Yeah. Those fit perfectly with the wingcopter. The, the applications that are more VLOS, as we spoke about a minute ago, are not really great for the wingcopter being, you know, like power line inspection and things of that nature. Not right now. Yeah. 
So Wingcopter had revenue early on. You had people interested in purchasing even before the product launched. Um, was it self-funded? And um, how does getting investors involved um, change the trajectory of the business? Yeah, great question. So, you know, like a lot of startups, it was um, friends and family to begin with. It was founder money, friends and family uh, to get to the company to the, you know, to the first level. And then, and then we had some uh, early sort of uh, angel investors to come in from different parts of the world uh, that helped kind of get us to the next stage. Uh, we had a $20 million, uh, you know, uh, series A round uh, last year uh, that really propelled us to the next level. And we are in the, uh, in the negotiations and discussions with uh, various entities for the series B later this year. So it, it's been kind of followed the a normal path of a startup. Uh, I mean, pre-rev, you know, pre-founding revenue was was not very big revenue, but it, it certainly got us a lot of uh, visibility in the market. That's for sure. Um, let's let's talk more about the uh, the drone specifically, the Wingcopter One Nine Eight. It's a it's a fixed wing drone. We'll see if we can edit some photos of this drone uh, into the show because I think the design is. Uh, uh, it's pretty extraordinary. Can you tell us about the specs of the drone? Yeah, so let me focus on the design. First of all, the, the Wingcopter is arguably the most beautiful drone in the industry. Uh, we have, you would not believe how many comments we get every every time we go to a show, every time we, we fly the aircraft. Uh, we've closed so many opportunities within days of flying the aircraft and people seeing its capabilities, not only its its beauty as a as an aircraft design, mm -hmm. but its flight characteristics, its speed, <clears throat> its uh, agility, and those kinds of things. So, uh, you know, the, it depends on the obviously the conditions that we're flying in, the payload, and all that. But we can we can uh, get as as far as 120 kilometers distance uh, out of the aircraft. Um, uh, like I said, we can carry up to 13 pounds of payload, and um, uh, there is no real restrictions with respect to flying in the rain or in harsh conditions. Uh, one of the things that is uh, one of the major advantages of the aircraft is its extreme uh, aerodynamic design. So in very high winds, it uh, it performs beautifully. Hmm. And, and other aircraft that don't have the same aerodynamics or multi-copters that don't have the aerodynamics at all, really, uh, just can't compete in, in those kinds of uh, projects where we're flying. So we, we get a question all the time from our students when we talk about um, BV loss, drone delivery, and all of that. How does a drone like this, um, how is a drone like this allowed to fly beyond visual line of sight when typical off-the-shelf drone or not? And I know the answer, but I would like you to explain this to the viewers, yeah. how this makes a difference between the two and uh, and why you guys have to go through this entire approval process and, and do everything that you yeah. do behind the scene. So uh, you're, you're probably very aware that uh, the regulators own the skies and, uh, and, and there's a lot, there's potentially a lot of traffic in those skies from police helicopters or medical helicopters or taking off and landing at airports. And, uh, and, and so the regulators are very guarded, uh, about their airspace. And so, uh, you know, it is a, a challenge to get uh, authorization to fly BV loss right now. In order to do that, we have to get uh, basically waivers. Uh, and so in places where we fly, we, we contact the FAA, we present our, uh, our concept of operations. We present our, uh, uh, safety plan. Uh, we prove that the aircraft is safe in the conditions that we're going to be flying. And we're only allowed right now to fly under waivers. Uh, and it's usually, you know, point A to point B at certain altitude, certain speed and avoiding certain infrastructure. Uh, there will come a day when we get a type certification and the FAA uh, it provides that level of flexibility that that will be opened up more and more and more to to ad hoc uh, routes and ad hoc uh, concept of operations. But right now it's it's quite restrictive and uh, and we have to be uh, very careful in how we approach every one of these uh, projects. 
Yeah, and and I know um, I've I've read and I've taught about the um, the concept of Operation 2.0 for the UTM that the FA has put out several years ago now. Yeah, and um, and in that document they talk about DAA, detect and avoid uh, technology. And I I always have this question when we talk about drone deliveries and and BV lost drones and maybe even autonomous drones. Um, is this science fiction at the moment, and is this the limitation of why this is not more routine? It's, it's one of the major ones for sure. So we, we have been researching, talking with vendors, collaborating with partners for now for months about DAA. Uh, and the, the detect and avoid situation is going to have to be on board an aircraft that's allowed the, the, the full uh, operating uh, uh, conops that you would desire for commercial deliveries. So we're working with some of the top companies in the world uh, in, in DAA technology. Uh, we're also in the process of evaluating and, and looking at building our own internally. Uh, this is just not an easy task. I mean, we have an aircraft flying at the speed we fly with the kinetic energy we have. Uh, I can assure you the FAA and all the regulators want to know that we are extremely safe and that we can avoid objects uh, almost instantaneously uh, that is a very, that's a very big challenge. Uh, but uh, with our partners, we are confident we're up to the challenge. It's just not easy, and it takes it takes time. Yeah, and and I know one of the fears in the industry from uh, from people that fly smaller aircraft, uh, including uh, unmanned aircraft, is the fear that uh, this type of operation would take over their operation and prevent them from flying. Uh, what can you tell our listeners that may be worried about this of how this is going to be organized so that it doesn't happen? You know, that's uh, like you said, the UTMs will, will play a role in this as that rolls out in the U.S. and other places. Uh, but, you know, one of the challenges we face is the non-cooperative aircraft. So uh, yep. it, it is generally thought that flying in the rural areas is the safest because you you don't have the uh, air and ground risk. However, uh, believe it or not, crop dusters are uncooperative or mm -hmm. non-cooperative. Mm -hmm. Uh, they they do not have the requirement to have uh, uh, some of the, uh, the the radar and and detection stuff. Some of them don't even have radios. Mm -hmm. So detect and avoid is is equally as important, maybe in in rural areas as in urban areas. So uh, that's something we're working through with the FAA, and we have calls every week with the FAA. Our partners uh, are generally on those calls with us. We're uh, you know discussing and negotiating and figuring out how to work together. And so we're probably as far along as anybody in the industry in, in getting this uh, proven out. But, you know, like we just said, it's not easy. This is a tough, a tough road to, to, to hoe. Yeah. Sorry, I have so many follow-ups, but this is a topic that I'm, I'm fascinated with because uh, I think there's a lot of concepts out there by the FAA, and, and I think there's still a lot of, uh, of answers that are, that are just not out there. Uh, you mentioned um, manned aircraft that are flying in the UTM below 400 feet, helicopters, crop dusters, and other uh, participants. Yeah. Do you foresee a time when um, the... The UTM, the, the below 400 feet, would become a unmanned aircraft world where manned aircraft have to play and uh, and and be and be active instead of passive in their participation. Hmm. You know, we sure hope so. I mean, I think there's been some discussion about uh, crop dusters uh, having transponders. Yeah. Today they don't, and uh, it's my understanding that there's a resistance to that. I mean, obviously. Uh, this is airspace that's been kind of reserved for these different classes of aircraft for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, adding another layer of, of high speed aircraft in the airspace is, uh, can be unpopular with, with some groups. I can't imagine. Uh, but <laughs> the commercial opportunities here are, are really huge. And the, the opportunities to do what we want to do, which is saving and improving lives, is really, really compelling. Yeah. And so uh, we know that we'll get there. The question is how quickly will we get there? So for instance, if you look at the partnership with Wingcopter and Sprite, uh, where it's about medical deliveries to and from hospitals, 
the the flight paths that you're talking about are are those predefined and preset and pre-approved flight paths where you fly from A to B and back? Yeah, and that's that's one of the good things about our emphasis on B to B. So uh, we are really focused on B to B, not B to C right now. Uh, I know there's some competitors that are B to C. You know, more power to them. Uh, I wish them all the success in the world. But you can imagine how much more complex it is to convince the FAA that you're going to take off from a single point and fly to a a myriad of of uh, of of points that might be different every day. Yeah, which is delivering to a home, for example. So, so if you notice, all of the B to C guys are flying from point A to point B, and it's a fixed route, right? So, in our case, B to B. Uh, from hospital to hospital, clinic to hospital, you know, diagnostics lab to hospital, those are known point A's and point B's, right? Yeah. And so uh, we can plan out the route such that we avoid uh, unnecessarily ground and air risk, uh, which is exactly what we do. And sometimes we go way out of the way to go from point A to point B, uh, as opposed to how the crow flies. But since we can fly so fast, uh, we can still uh, usually get places faster than any other means of, of transportation. Yeah, so you're, you're comparing it, uh, let's say, with, for instance, uh, drone up and flying drones uh, to make deliveries from Walmart uh, stores where they fly from one store to all these different households. And that's I can understand why that would be a lot more complicated. Now, uh, yeah. for instance, if you look at Zipline, they had a different approach, right? I mean, rather than trying to uh, get started in the United States, they took their drone to Africa, to Rwanda, and basically uh, used their drones to fly from point to point there. Is that something that Wincom thought about maybe taking their drone to a less regulated, less busy airspace and see if you can uh, get started there? So we've been operating in Malawi for three years. Uh, We are currently building out the entire uh, infrastructure for delivery of medical supplies in the country of Malawi, including uh, uh, drone uh, hubs uh, Mm -hmm. and, and various routes all over the entire country. So we did the same thing. We, okay. we did pretty much the same thing at about the same time. We have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hours of flying BD loss in those parts of the world. Uh, we've also done this in Japan. Uh, we've even done some trials in Ireland and in even Germany. So we've got plenty of BD loss experience. And we, we also have plenty of CONOPS and SORA experience for BD loss, uh, maybe as much or more than anybody in the world. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, that was a good approach. I think, again, as I said earlier, the B2C is um, is just not somewhere we, we see ourselves right now. A couple of years from now, yes. Now, yeah. focused 100% B2B. And then trying to get B2B started in the United States, where arguably the regulation, I guess, is perhaps most developed and the airspace is, uh, is extra busy. Once you are able to prove that your business case works there, it'd be easier to take it to different countries? Yes, yes. But simultaneously, we are flying in those other countries. We've done some really cool projects in Japan, for example, uh, with our partner there, which is ANA, uh, All Nippon Airways. Uh, and so, um, uh, and we are getting ready to do some uh, projects, uh, really cool projects in Latin America in, in a couple of different locations. So, in some ways, it may be a little easier to fly in those areas, uh, maybe not because the regulations are, are much lower, but because they are tend to be much more rural. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't think of Japan as, as super rural, but when you get down far south in Japan, there's some disconnected communities where there's a lot of distance between the communities. So, uh, you know, it has some of the same aspects. And for those of you that are trying to figure out where Malawi is, it's uh, Southeast Africa. I just looked it up because I didn't know. <laughs> um, the um, I, I want to go back to what you mentioned earlier about the point A to point B route because I had this question lined up for later, but I think this is a good time to talk about it. Um, there, there have been discussions from some uh, local governments that want to restrict access to the airspace for your type of operation to be over easements instead of being direct point A to point B. Um, Are you working with these types of municipalities or local government to kind of educate them on what it is that is around the corner so that we don't end up with, I I would call them, um, unnecessary regulation? 
You know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because right before this call, I had that very discussion uh, with a, a, a project uh, in Northwest United States and where the local regulators want us to fly across the easements uh, instead of flying across a road. And uh, ironically, the road is a dirt road that may have two vehicles a day on it. And uh, you can imagine the wing copter, let's, let's just pick arbitrarily 300 feet, flying it, you know, 80 miles an hour. Uh, for that aircraft to crash on that road, the likelihood is so remote yeah. <laughs> based on the glide path that it's almost com comical, but uh, the person I was talking to said, yeah, 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 but we've got to prove it. We have to pull the, the road traffic and the, uh, you know, the infrastructure uh, traffic and, and compare that and, 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 you know, and put all the data together. And I'm like, okay, okay, we can do that. But, but yeah, you're right. Uh, there is uh, actually in some parts of the world, like in Ireland, for example, the, the waterways are, are being offered up as possible pathways like the rivers mm -hmm. uh, to fly down um, the, the electrical grid, you know, the easements for the electrical grid and even maybe some pipelines that, that don't have uh, explosive or, or flammable materials uh, are, are open for that as well. I, I don't know if that's ever going to catch on or not, but I get what they're trying to accomplish. So you said earlier that you're committed to wing copter drones being safe. Um, how do you actually ensure that these drones are safe? Um, how do you, uh, what steps do you take to make sure they don't fall out of the sky or that the probability is low? What happens if they do? Um, do they come equipped with parachutes or is there a possibility to um, add that on? We deal with that every day. So you know, some of the aircraft have parachutes. Wingcopter does not. It will not ever. And the reason for that is because we fly at very high speeds, whereas most of the guys that are carrying para uh, parachutes are not flying very fast. Deploying mm -hmm. a parachute uh, requires a lot of, uh, of weight occupancy on that aircraft, and we're already dealing with a ultralight aircraft to begin with to save for the payload. Uh, and furthermore, the aircraft is... Uh, uh, deploying a parachute at, you know, 80 miles an hour is probably not very advisable. Uh, so the only place that a parachute has any impact at all is in takeoff and landing in the vertical space. And, and that is such a short period of time that we, we are trying to convince the FAA that that's not a good idea for us, mm -hmm. uh, the glide slope and other things. But, but we, we do that with hardware and software. So hardware-wise, we have a complete 100% redundancy in everything. So there is no single point of failure. If you notice the Wingcopter 198 has eight rotors, it has dual batteries, it has multiple GNSS, it has multiple flight controllers. Uh, there's no single point of, of failure. That's number one. Number two is we, uh, uh, we have procedures in the software. If something out of normal happens and there's a variety of scenarios, then the aircraft knows what to do, do to mitigate any risk that it might create. Uh, number three is, as, as was mentioned before by Greg, is the DAA. Uh, we will eventually, it'll be, it'll be several months, but we will eventually have a highly sophisticated optical DAA system. Uh, we will be able to identify uh, objects uh, some very far distance out and be able to have the aircraft automatically take some evasive action or if time allows, have the operator that's sitting at a computer somewhere uh, be able to take evasive action. But, uh, you know, we're doing everything we can think of uh, with respect to connectivity, with respect to GPS coordinates, with respect to all of those things to make sure we know where that aircraft is at all times, what it's doing. Uh, and if it deviates one bit from what it's supposed to do, there's a bunch of things that can happen to take care of that. 
I have kind of a long-winded question, but I want to preface this because I've been for several years fascinated with the airline industry and seeing how they're trying to reduce the number of pilots on board of the aircraft. And, and I, I truly believe that in, in several years, we will see pilotless aircraft. I know it's not a popular opinion, yeah. but I, I believe this is where the uh, industry is going. So, uh, and, and I believe that the UAS industry is actually going to precipitate this, uh, this feeling. You mentioned earlier multiple operators on your aircraft. And and, um, and I'm assuming there's a certain level of, of autonomy with your aircraft at the moment. Are you at the point now where an aircraft could be fully autonomous without an operator? Is the goal to have an operator um, maybe uh, surveilling different aircraft at the same time and then eventually move to fully autonomous operation? I'm, I'm really interested in that, that, um, that side yeah. of the business. So the wingcopter is autonomous. Uh, but there is an operator that is, uh, is, is watching the aircraft at all times. Yeah. So uh, on a computer screen, just like what we're on now, what I'm on now, uh, the, the, the aircraft is, is always observable and always uh, can be interacted with. But, but it, is, uh, it is a waypoint-driven uh, uh, operating system. So we tell it point A to point B, and we tell it how high, how fast, and, and it goes to where it's supposed to go. So, uh, so that's coming, it's coming very fast. We're also in the process of developing uh, one of the first one-to-many uh, flight control systems. So our aspiration is one to 10, so that one operator can, uh, can manage 10 autonomous aircraft. Wow. You can imagine the complexity of that, mm -hmm. and you can maybe even imagine uh, the FAA's uh, excitement about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, or like thereof. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and then there's the discussion about you know what what's the attention span of a pilot. I, I think there in that case, a pilot becomes an air traffic controller. Yeah. So, uh, I think there's a lot of research on how that works out, but you won't see that anytime very soon. You may see the FAA allowing us to, for example, uh, run tests at one of their test sites with one to two or one to three, maybe. Uh, and, and that would we'd have to clock a bunch of hours to prove to them that that works and that our uh, our pilot is is capable of managing multiple aircraft and and then you're going to have to have all the sophistication of DAA and and you know GPS and L, multiple LTE and all that kind of stuff. So we're a ways off, but we're working uh, we're working for that specifically in the days ahead. Yeah. Your pilot becomes a system engineer and, and making sure that they understand the aircraft and how it's going to react in certain situation. And I can imagine that di different phases of flight, you'd, you'd have one person surveilling different service, uh, phases of flight. It would be interesting to see the, the training that's going to be, my heart is in the training industry, uh, the, the training that's going yeah. to be required for these pilots. Is this something that you've been starting to think about is how do we train these operators to do these kind of jobs versus traditional uh, flight training? Absolutely. And you know what? It's interesting we, we get a lot of people contact us and say, well, I'm, I'm out of the uh, uh, Air Force, uh, you know, whatever country it is, and I flew F-15s, so I would be a good drone pilot. And, and, and we say, irrelevant. <laughs> uh, then we have the guys that fly DJIs, you know, with the, uh, the stick control and stuff, and they say, okay, well, we're ready. Yep. We say, no, not, not really relevant. Other than the, the fright, flight characteristics, and understanding how aircraft operate and the aerodynamics and so forth. Uh, flying a BV loss UAS is a completely different, uh, a completely different situation. It does require a lot of training. So we, we have our own training facilities in Germany and we bring in people to, to learn because we have, I would say roughly four years of BV loss uh, expertise flying. Uh, we've seen probably every possible scenario, both good and bad in a BV loss flying. But at the same time, our partners here in the US Sprite are, uh, are going to be uh, an authorized trainer for us here. Uh, we will have authorized trainers in other parts of the world like Latin America and Japan. And, uh, and we, will, uh, we, we will embark on getting the, all of those guys up to speed and, and, and proficient in the, by the end of this year easily. Outstanding. 
so I want to jump over to who you think your competition is. Um, would you say Zipline, Swoop Arrow? There's a company called Mana Arrow out of Ireland. Um, who's your biggest competition? You know, that's kind of a multifaceted question. So uh, <laughs> everyone you named uh, is, is really doing well in the market. They, they, you know, there's no doubt they have good aircraft. Uh, no doubt they've made lots of flights and they've really had a lot of success uh, like us. So we're, we're kind of all in that sort of upper tier category. Uh, Zipline's really focused on a completely different delivery model, as you know, uh, you know, one way parachute delivery, uh, which is ideal probably for B2C uh, in most scenarios, uh, you know, Swoop and, and Matternet that you didn't mention and some, uh, and some others, MANA and others, uh, they've been really focused heavily on the B2C. Uh, you'll also see a lot of our competitors will talk about medical delivery. But, but here's the deal. The aircraft, as I said before, has to be safe, durable, and reliable. But in addition to that, the operations of the aircraft are critical path. Uh, and it is very difficult, in my opinion, I'm sure there will be a lot of people that disagree, but in my opinion, it is very difficult to be a premier operator and a premier OEM of UAS aircraft. Now, I know there's a lot, several of them doing this, like Zipline and others, but at the end of the day, you don't see Boeing trying to be American Airlines and you don't see American Airlines trying to be Boeing. You know, it's hard enough to build aircraft and continue to innovate in the UAS space. Uh, and, and on the other side of that, it's hard enough to be an operator of UAS in the airspace with all the regulations and and, and maintaining those aircraft under under regulations in this case part 145 in the US and uh, so those are those are very different tasks and they're very complicated so we think our approach is the best approach and that is that we do what we do best which is primarily build aircraft although we do operate them too in uh, in humanitarian projects in other places but uh, we are really good at uh, building aircraft and we partner with people that are really, really good at flying those aircraft and know the, oper know the operations, they know the, uh, the regulations, they have the connections, they have the credibility, uh, they have the expertise. Uh, and so that's been our approach and that's how we're, we're moving forward. So uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and go back to uh, to UPS. Uh, I think UPS both used Matternet drones as well as I believe uh, Wingcopter drones. But recently, the uh, the CEO Carol Tome said that, uh, and I quote: "This is from Bloomberg. Uh, this, she said this about delivery drones: is that you cannot fly them when it's windy, you can't fly them when it's rainy, and there's a lot of issues with drones." Would you care to comment about uh, what you mentioned there? <laughs> Can you guarantee me that there's none of my UPS buddies going to listen to this? Uh, <laughs> promise, promise. <laughs> we can. Actually, when, uh, you know, Carol is a really smart lady. When I saw that comment, I was shocked. Yeah. Um, the, the very reason UPS originally selected us in the, in the last quarter of 2019 was we took our aircraft to uh, Kentucky and we flew in the wind and the rain and they were shocked. Mm -hmm. uh, they had not seen, I don't think up to that point, an aircraft that could fly in the wind and the rain. And I, if I'm not incorrect, it was, it was raining and it was about a uh, 30 mile an hour wind with gusts to 35. And our aircraft took off in front of their uh, flight forward uh, up team and long, along with uh, some others from from the airline, uh, maybe like 30 or 35 people in, in the, yeah. the showcase, if you will. It took off directly into the wind and flew around multiple times, hovered uh, almost completely stationary about 10 feet above the ground. And the oohs and ahs were confirming. And yeah. we signed a contract with them about six weeks later. So that's probably the best answer I can give you. Yeah, I, I remember seeing that comment and I thought, wow, I mean, it, it, it seems like for a company like UPS, because they, they can do both B2C and B2B if they, if they so choose to. Uh, if anybody would have options to deploy drones, it'd be a company like UPS, you would think. So to have them say something like this was, uh, yeah, raised a few eyebrows for yeah. sure. 
to all of my buddies at UPS, love you guys. <laughs> I have kind Thank of a you. I have a follow up from uh, Haya's question, and and that has to do, and this is my personal opinion. I think uh, drone delivery for what I would call non essential goods, um, uh, tube socks and a coffee bag and uh, whatever it is, I don't think that's a viable. Uh, business at the moment, what am I missing? Is this really the future or should we really concentrate on delivering uh, drugs and, and, and the things that you are t talking about with the medical industry? Thank you guys are going to get me in all kinds of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. So obviously this is my opinion. This is my opinion, but our position at Wingcopter is we want to, and it's right there on our website, we want to save and improve lives. I don't personally care if you get your tube socks an hour sooner than you can buy a truck. Um, I'm not interested, and I can't speak for our founders, you know, they may have, a, I don't think they do, but they may have a different opinion. Those trivial goods are are more of a marketing thing than they are mm -hmm. an impactful thing. And so yeah. let me give you an example. We, we know for certain that we have saved lives with the Wingcopter. We have, uh, we have delivered vaccines. We've delivered uh, supp medical supplies. We've delivered uh, uh, pharmaceuticals and things that, that were needed very quickly. And, and these are places like, uh, there's another place that you may not uh, be aware of in the South Pacific, an island called Vanuatu, yeah. uh, which is a South Pacific island, and it has disconnected communities. And, and we, we know for certain, we were, we've been seen visibly how we were able to save lives and improve lives. So to the extent that a product uh, saves or improves someone's life, and I don't mean by, you know, they get tube socks an hour quicker. That's where we want to be. And that's where we're focused. And to the guys that want to deliver pizzas and beer and uh, hamburgers and stuff, you know, more power to you. Uh, I wish you I wish you well. So no pun intended here, but um, what are some of the obstacles uh, you think exist that stand in the way of drone delivery taking off? It's, it's not the technology. It's really proving to the regulators that we can do it safely. Um, that's pretty much it. The technology is there, the, the ability to carry packages, to deliver them. Even we're working very quickly toward being able to deliver hazardous material in a touchless environment so that we could ultimately deliver blood and organs and things uh, and, and, and do that not as a, a marketing pitch or a uh, you know, a marketing sizzle for photographers, but really truly deliver uh, high value emergency supplies to places. And, and we can do that right here in the United States, by the way, there's lots of disconnected communities. Uh, but it, it's really proving to the Department of Transportation regarding transporting those goods and the FAA that we can fly safely. Uh, that is, and I wouldn't say it's a hurdle. It's just something we need to to convince them of and collaborate with them on, and then ultimately we'll get there. So this was uh, the perfect segue into my uh, into my next question uh, to do with the FAA. Uh, my question really is: uh, Are the current drone regulations are they standing in the way of the drone delivery business taking off? And uh, if so, do you feel that the FAA is structured appropriately, uh, or do we need perhaps an? Uh, unmanned division of the FEA that is uh, dedicated to facilitating this rapidly changing and growing drone market. There you go again, man. You're getting me in trouble. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> uh, you know, the in defense of the FAA, they uh, we're introducing an, an aircraft in the airspace that that really disrupts their entire model. Yeah. And and they, uh, and, and this is not an easy thing for them to swallow. Uh, and I understand why. I mean, the U.S. is the most crowded airspace in the world. And, you know, if I were in their shoes, I, I might be in the same position where I would be extra, extra, extra cautious. Uh, so we are working as closely as we can 
with them. Uh, do I wish their regulations were easier? Of course. Uh, do I wish they had a division that would uh, focus completely 100% on UAS and and really help us be an accelerator for this in a safe way as opposed to maybe, you know, oftentimes a, a break? Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. Uh, it's funny because I was, I was in Ireland talking to the uh, IAA, the Ireland Aviation Authority, and they're under EASA, as you are probably aware. And uh, I, was, I was struck by the comment that one of the guys made, and he said, you know, here in EASA in Europe, we're focused on trying to figure out a way to incorporate uh, UAS in our airspace proactively. We are not taking the same stance as, as, as we, that I'm speaking for him, uh, perceive that the uh, FAA is slowing down the process. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I think there could be a little more uh, collaboration, maybe. Uh, but but all in all, I, I get both sides of the of the of the issue. Yeah. I, I really do. Yeah, I mean, this has this has come up in many of the uh, the shows we've done before, where we talk about the FEA, and I mean, they they are in a tough spot, and I think we all we all realize that. Do you know of any example around the world where you would say, okay, this aviation authority right there? they got it figured out or they have the best model? Because we, we've seen, for instance, Amazon this, the, did their testing uh, purposely in England. Uh, we've seen uh, Wing from Google to do it in Australia. We have Zipline in Africa. I mean, is, is there a best place where we have best practices? Yeah, I don't know that I would say it that way. I think, I think there are countries that may have uh, be, be more aggressive with mm -hmm. this. I mean, you remember, US is the leading technology company in the world. I mean, all of the technology unicorns, have, I mean, virtually all of them come out of the US, right? So yeah. uh, a lot of countries are, are seeing the UAS as an opportunity for them to, to sort of get in the limelight. Um, I know that again, when I was talking to the IAA, um, who's part of IASA, that, uh, that they aspire to be one of the leaders of, of drone technology in the world. Uh, our friends in Japan uh, aspire to do the same thing. They want to be noted as the as sort of the innovators in this space. The, the guys in United Arab Emirates are, are very aggressive, uh, wanting to be known uh, in this particular uh, industry. You know, we we've kind of got a lot of a lot of sports here in the U.S. Right, so we we don't have to necessarily be so focused on one and. Uh, so, I mean, I hope that came across correctly, but, but there are more aggressive countries uh, with the regulators than, than the U.S. And they're more collaborative, I guess you would call it, than what we're seeing in the U.S. You know, since we're talking about regulation, I want to bring up Remote ID. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a very controversial topic. I'm sure you've uh, read, listened, and, yeah. and seen other things. Um, how, how do you think Remote ID fits into your operation? Is it is it going to make it harder? Is it going to make it more more or, or easier for you to operate and do what you guys do? No, we're already doing that anyway. So we, we did a project on the West Coast in San Diego, flying from San Diego to uh, uh, to Coronado Island with uh, a company that I can't name, but uh, and we had to integrate remote idea, you know, two years ago. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is what it is. I mean, we're going to end up with transponders on these and, uh, you know, we're going to have a full board avionics before we're finished. Do you think everybody sharing their airspace, including the small guys, I'm going to call them the small guys, the one that are operating your DJI drone, do you think that's critical to you knowing where other aircraft are located so we can better integrate everybody in the airspace? Yeah, that's another area I'm going to get in trouble. So I fly DJI <laughs> drones myself. I'm a part 107. And I'm conflicted about that. I get, I get why it's important. Uh, in the airspace, because even a small DJI like I have can do some pretty serious damage if my aircraft is hitting it at like, you know, 80 miles an hour. Uh, it's probably going to bring down my aircraft, right? So I get why that's important. <clears throat> uh, but on the other hand, the hobbyist guys, you know, I get why they want to be in the airspace doing what they're doing as well. And, and the guys that are taking photographs for real estate and and so forth uh, in it. And so 
it's a tough one. It's yep. it's really a tough one because the air space is going to get really crowded really quick. Um, I know that in uh, United Arab Emirates, they banned all private uh, uh, UAS because of the recent uh, attacks. Yeah. So wait until that happens here. I mean, it, and it's inevitable. One of these days, somebody's going to be crazy enough to launch one of those into some crowd or something and and then watch what happens. So uh, I think we've got some rough, rough seas ahead for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you've, uh, you've combined it really well. I have the same exact feeling as you do. You know, I understand the concept of remote ID, but then the, the implementation is maybe not the, the best at this yeah. stage. Um, I do want to talk about another topic that I think is interesting and that a lot of our listeners have been asking about is, uh, how are you going to deal with what I'm going to call drone pirates that are going to go after, uh, the loot that uh, you are delivering to other people. And this may not apply necessarily as much to you because you're going between hospital and hospital, but what happens? when we start delivering in the front yard of somebody's house and uh and, and everybody knows that there is a package coming down and and uh and shooting yeah. it. that's a great question so so there's some really cool uh companies out there all over the world that are building these receiving boxes uh there's one company uh, and i'm trying to think of the name of them now but i'm blank that actually bores a hole in the roof of your house and has a uh like a chimney receiving uh, system, huh. mm -hmm. uh, pretty clever. Uh, there's other guys that have boxes that, uh, uh, that sit out in your front yard that are, you know, concreted into the ground and, and have a, you know, an ID They're maybe eight feet tall where it's pretty hard to get up on top of them. And, uh, you know, so you'll see some real cool innovations in that space for us, uh, medical delivery, our partner Sprite, is has designed and is producing out of Israel a really cool hazmat receiving box where the wingcopter will uh, and it's not there yet but it will be there by this summer the wingcopter will be identified with the software coming into the box it will uh, then uh, validate and then open the box uh, drop the package and uh, and that package will be sorted by whatever means uh, is chosen uh, all where uh, it would not be have to be handled by an individual. So for security purposes of hazardous material. So you're going to see tons of innovation if you're not already uh, in that space. And, and we love all of those guys and we want to work with, you know, as many of those guys as it makes sense to work with. Is there any concern about just a myriad or increased amount of noise in the airspace due to drone delivery? Dang, you guys have all the good questions. Um, <laughs> I was just at Manifest last week, and that topic specifically came up. Uh, you know, so the wingcopter uh, is uh, turning eight rotors to take off vertically, but when it gets up to about ten meters. It is uh, converting to forward flight, uh, shutting off six of them and only relying on two of them in the forward flight mode. Uh, and at altitude, uh, the wing copter is virtually silent. So we don't really, we don't really have any issues with, with that uh, in the flight pattern. Uh, and so far our preliminary decibels are below 80 in the takeoff mode. Now, obviously that, I don't remember what the distance is and, you know, what the wind factors were and all that kind of, when all those things were taken, because we're in the preliminary stages of that. But but we we believe we are as quiet or quieter than anybody in the takeoff. And then and then forward flight, there's no one that can compete with Wingcopter on silence, no one. And so, yes, that's going to be a big factor in the acceptance of these aircraft flying. Yeah. That's where Wingcopter really shines. Uh, this was another factor, I think, in, in when we flew uh, and demonstrated our capabilities to several companies around the world, uh, when, when it got to altitude, which is, you know, maybe uh, 100 feet, 150 feet, uh, and we did a low pass over the crowd, uh, it was virtually silent. And it was shocking to them how, how silent, because, again, you're only using two, two forward propellers uh, at, a, at a less RPM rate than you would in takeoff, and it's and, and then you have the advantage of the airfoil, which is a, a wide wing with winglets in the 198. So, I mean, it it can't be any quieter. I don't. I can't imagine a design that would be any quieter. 
Awesome. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you mentioned this, Kara, because I was working on some questions. But uh, wasn't it the uh, the wing drone from Google in Australia where they use really small propellers uh, that they had some uh, some complaints? I think about noise with those drones. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was wondering. I mean, for for wingcopter specifically, are there other areas that you guys are looking to branch into? Like not not areas geographically, but I mean, let's say mapping or search and rescue or modeling or inspections, uh, those kind of drone applications. So I think Greg will appreciate this. In order to get a type certification, you have to certify a certain configuration of your aircraft, uh, and you have to prove in front of the FAA its capabilities in that configuration. So, uh, you know, it is counterproductive to have an aircraft that yeah. is is a multitasking aircraft. So ours is a delivery aircraft exclusively for this initial TC. Now, after the initial TC, we will uh, look at other applications that might make sense, that might have diff slightly different configurations. But then we're going to have to go back through the TC. Uh, well, not not the full TC, but but a, uh, a supplemental TC in order to get those certified. So it's counterproductive for us to be a jack of all trades, but rather a, a master of one. Yep. How long do you foresee that that certification process will take uh, for the United States and for your drone? Wow. If you if you can tell me, I'm I'm all ears. It, <laughs> yeah. it is it is um it is a march towards a goal that could have a lot of bumps along the way. Uh, I mean, for example, the the original G one document out of the FA was uh, we were shooting for I think it was twelve hundred uh, population density per square mile, mm -hmm. uh, which is tier the second tier of the uh, of the TC or regulations and. It's my understanding that that may change now uh, with a, a, a new a document coming out of the FAA. So I'm not close enough daily to it to know, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're actually changing a tire on a moving car, right? So uh, the FAA is learning and, and updating their regulations while we're simultaneously working with them to uh, get our certification. So if they see something in one of the drones that are going through certification that they didn't think about, then mm -hmm. I think they have, uh, they are going to take the option to, to add that into the TC process if they so, so choose to do so. So it, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be an interesting dance in the coming months. I, I hope it's, we're, we're hoping and, and that we can get this done in 2023. Uh, that wow. is our current March toward that. Uh, but we don't have control over that. It's really the FAA. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Like my one of my my favorite FAA employee keeps telling me, he said we're moving at the speed of government. So uh, that's how fast things are happening. Uh, I, I, you mentioned earlier that you had uh, you saved lives, and you know you saved lives. Can you give us examples of things where drone deliveries are making a difference and uh, su some success stories? Yeah. So I mentioned Vanuatu. We we delivered uh, vaccines for children. Uh, from a hospital to remote villages. And uh, in those cases, those uh, children did not have access to the vaccines. And, you know, vaccines are, are uh, a cold chain and they, uh, you know, it's not easy to move them around. Uh, we've been talking to uh, a company that I can't name about doing this in Indonesia uh, because of all the disconnected communities and the lack of access. You wouldn't believe the hundreds of millions of people that uh, do not have ready access uh, to a, a cold chain vaccine that is so sensitive as, as like the COVID vaccine. So uh, so the, the opportunities to save and improve lives is, is with that in one thing is one thing. The other one is, is organ delivery. You know, organs are, are have to go quickly. And yep. uh, if you know much about it, you know that if there's a heart in one part of the country and there's a don a recipient in the other, uh, they usually put those, you know, in a chest and fly them on a jet aircraft and, and the cost can be just astronomical. Uh, the other one is blood delivery. Uh, believe it or not, there is, um, again, I can't really say who this is, but there's a, a major city in the U S that, uh, that their EMT, uh, has problems getting blood to strategic locations in the city when there's an accident. And so 
there are ways of the, the drone can highly speed up that effort uh, and and deal with the distance and the time uh, that are required there. In, in uh, another country I can't really mention, in Africa, their uh, their uh, blood supply organization is talking to us about sending blood uh, rapidly to locations all over the country. So, I mean, those those are really good examples of just for sure saving lives and improving lives. So uh, on the improving lives side, you, you see uh, in industry, there are parts and things that end up costing tremendous amounts of money if they don't have them. Uh, for example, a wind farm, uh, in order to, to make a repair to a, wind, a windmill, uh, can be extraordinarily expensive. And if, if there's not a, a little single part, like a bolt or a, or a, a wrench, a specialized wrench or something that is not highly, uh, readily available, uh, they're looking at drones to quickly deliver these things from a supply location. So uh, shore to ship, there's opportunities to, uh, to transverse the waterways and the, and the uh, oceans and, and things to deliver things that are, are important or critical. So, I mean, there's a myriad of applications for uh, uh, improving and saving lives uh, with a drone, for sure. I love it. Yeah, I love it. I agree. I think there's a, a lot of opportunity. You already mentioned earlier in your show that uh, you think the uh, the Wingcopter 198, 198 is the most beautiful drone. Uh, our last question for you here, since uh, we're already over an hour, I think, is what is your favorite drone to fly yourself? I'd love to fly the wingcopter, but I don't think they'll let me. <laughs> no, no, no. I, Ouch. Not after today. I, mean, I, have, I have a DJI that I, you know, it's a flying camera. I love, I'm a photographer. Yeah. And I love flying and the, the aspect of getting a, a camera up in the air is, is really cool for me. So uh, I've, I've been able to film some, some state parks in Texas and do, some really cool uh, video and photography. Uh, that that's a blast doing that. So, uh, I think the DJI is a darn good aircraft. Though, but you know the Wingcopter. I hope my aspiration is someday to be certified in that and and to be able to fly that drone. But uh, it's a bit yeah. scary to fly something that sophisticated and expensive. <laughs> yep. I can imagine. Well, thank you so much for making uh, time available today. I mean, one of the things we want to achieve with this show is, is to basically uh, educate people and inform people about all the different use cases of drones. And I think you've made a very strong case today for uh, the need for drones and how they can be useful. So thank you so much. Yep. Uh, for people listening and watching the show, uh, if you want to learn more about Wingcopter, we'll put all the links in the description. So be sure to check them out. They got a lot of cool news stories on their website. And if you enjoyed the Pixel Drone Show, of course, be sure to subscribe and please share it with your friends and family. The bigger audience we are able to reach, the more interesting guests we can get on the show and the better the show will become eventually. Um, all our episodes uh, air on Tuesday morning. Um, so be ready for this one to go live. And yeah, thanks again for watching and listening. And we'll be uh, back to you with a new show next week.